0: be able to worship together today. Um, You know, we're in this series, you see there, it's called Today's Special Dining with Jesus. And so I need to know, any foodies out there, anybody would say I'm a foodie? You know, that's someone that has a particular interest in food. Let me see those hands again. I see a few hands. Okay, you know, don't be shy. Don't be ashamed. I am as well. I love good food. But when we started this series, somebody actually said they were married to someone who food wasn't an issue for them. They're like, ah, they just kind of eat because they have to to survive. And there's this statement out there that you, you know, we either eat to live or we live to eat. So I'm curious, which side of that equation are you on? How many of you would say, I eat to live? It's just something I have to do to stay alive. Anybody? Raise those hands. I see them. Okay, I see a few people. How many of you are like me that you live to eat? <laughs> There we go. Thank you. I am not alone. I love food. That's my problem. That's why I put this shirt on this one I'm like, "Oh, it's a little tighter than I want it to be. Let's push it out here, you know? So, you know, I you know, there's just something about it when you taste something that's really good and why stop with a little of it if I can have a lot of it? You know? And so that's how I live. But here's some more questions. I'm just curious. Any of you out there like to cook? Any of you like to cook? Okay, we've got some cooks. Now, here's the other question. When you cook, are you like my wife? "Ah, Let's just see what we have in the pantry. Let's just throw some things together, a little dash of this, a little dash of that, and just whammo, blammo. It comes out amazing. Any of you that kind of cook? Or are you like me? There is joy and there is freedom and there is peace when I can follow a recipe. There we go. I like a recipe. It just something freeing about that. It says put a cup of this in, and I don't have to guess. I get a cup, and it's good. You know. Um, any okay? So some of you like to. How, how many of you would say I don't really care to cook, but I really like to bake? Anybody bakers out there? I know Marty Stoll is, because this woman makes some cinnamon rolls that. Whoo! I could eat the whole pan by myself. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I like to, I, occasionally I like to bake. A couple of weeks ago, I just decided, I huh, think I'll make a, some bread. Let's just see how that goes. And you know, it wasn't too bad. Um, so yeah, here's the last one. How many of you would say it's summer? Weather's been great, right? How many of you like to grill? Mmm, like to be out there on the grill. How many of you say you're a grill master? Any grill masters out there? See, I'm not. I'm not a grill master. That would be Carrie. Carrie's much better at it than I am, but I step up and do it so she doesn't have to do it. So I, I will get out there on the, on the grill. Well, it is Father's Day, and of course, when we're here, we love to recognize all the men in our service, and we've got a little something special for you today. And so what we're giving away to the, all the men in the room today is Ashworth's old-fashioned barbecue seasoning right there. Now, to be fair, I just told you I can't work without a recipe, so yes, I found a recipe online, <laughs> and we put it together, and this is great. We've tried it. It's great on meat and hamburgers and whatever you have, and so that is our gift to you just as a something a little fun, and Liz designed the label for us. Didn't, doesn't that look professional, and she does a great job there? Yeah. Now, I, it's it's our special seasoning, and so enjoy it. Um, I, if you're brave enough and you want to, you know, dip a little in your hand to taste it, feel free. I will warn you, it's a little spicy. There is cayenne pepper in there, and as Liz was putting those together in the foyer this week, cayenne filled the air. Kinda made your eyes sting a little bit. It's not that spicy, but it is a little bit. So thanks, Liz. Do we get everybody taken care of? Oh, you're getting another box. There we go. Liz is doing a great job as my Vanna White this morning. Look at that. it's showing the letters. Isn't that great? Well, as I said, we're in this series that we're calling uh, today's special, Dining with Jesus. Now, why are we doing this? We're like week three into this. It's kind of a strange thing to do, right? Just to kind of pick out moments where Jesus ate with people. And yeah, it's kind of strange, but I think we all know food matters. Meals matter. Meals are, are just full of significance. In fact, there's a book that's called Hungry City, and the author Carolyn Steele writes this. She says, few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on our way to becoming one. And we certainly see that with Jesus, is that who the last two Sundays, who did he share his table with? He went to the home of those dregs of society, those sinners, those tax collectors and prostitutes, and he's right there at the table with them. And yeah, as he's eating with them, he's like talking to them and caring about them and loving them. But then last week we had the story where he's at the home of a Pharisee, the religious leader, and we're like, Hold on, Jesus, you can't be at both tables. And he's like, oh, yes, I can. This is how I do things. And, and we see from Jesus this incredible model that says, you know, we don't have to be so limiting with who we invite to our table. Be like Jesus. Open the table and allow people to come in. In fact, sharing a meal and food was so important to Jesus. I want to do a quick exercise, though. I want you to complete this sentence. Look at this on the screen. Jesus came blank. Jesus came to What? Why would you finish that? Save our souls. What was another one? Anybody else? You could fill it in with a lot of different things and be right, just so you know. (laughs) To teach, yep. Healed. Love, yep. You, I mean, yes, he can save the lost. He came to rise from the dead. He came to announce the kingdom. We could fill that in with so many things. But did you know that Luke, in Luke's gospel, he records Jesus actually saying something about, he, he finishes basically this statement about himself. Look at this on the screen, Luke 7:34. Jesus is speaking here and he says, The Son of Man came what? Eating and drinking. Now, hold on. That doesn't fit in our paradigm, does it? He's, it's supposed to be something really spiritual and religious there that he came to do. And he's like, nope, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. I can get behind Jesus, right? That's, I can relate to that. And look at what he says next. And again, Jesus is speaking. And he says, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Okay, so here's a question. How much eating and drinking did Jesus have to do before they got to the place where they said, you are a glutton and a drunkard? Right? So this is something that was a big part of who Jesus was, his ministry. I mean, you almost get the impression this guy's just walking around with a taco in his hand all the time because he just, they're saying, all you do, Jesus, is eat. Isn't that fascinating that Jesus takes time here to point that out, that you guys say this about me? And he doesn't say, I'm not. (laughs) He says, yep, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. There's something significant about food. And sharing it with other people, and it t- it takes something that is necessary for life that we all need, and it brings people together. It and, or should I say it it can bring people together if we allow it. In fact, as I was studying this week, you know that uh, the author Carolyn Steele she talked about how meals are so significant for companionship, and I hadn't seen this before. But somebody said, "Have you broken down the word companion?" And I thought, "Nope, never have." And so when you break that down, you get the C O M come which means with or together. And then you have panion, which is from the word panis, which means bread. And so the word companion literally means bread fellow. Well, you can, for me, I thought you can stop the sermon right there because that is so significant. We don't think about it that way, but it really does highlight for us the importance of being around the table together. There's real significance there. And in the past couple of weeks, like I said, we've seen Jesus put himself in some different situations, sharing meals with those that was, it would be very scandalous for him to do because they thought he would be unclean just by being in the presence of those people. But he also went to the religious leaders and the Pharisees. He really wasn't that discriminating in who he was willing to eat with. And today we come to a time in his ministry where he's not in somebody's home, but food is a central issue of what's taking place. And he miraculously meets the people's need with food of five simple rolls or small loaves of bread and two fish. This is one of the very few stories in the Bible that all four gospels talk about. And so I don't know, but that means there's some real significance here. And uh, we know it very simply as the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And if you grew up in Sunday school. If you're like me, you can remember the flannel graph and the, the picture of the people and the loaves and the you you know, all these things come flooding back to mind. But I do want to tell you there's a few things happening right around this moment in Jesus' life. In fact, if you put the four gospel narratives together, you find out that one of the things that's happening is the disciples, the twelve, have been sent out. They've been sent out to heal, they've been sent out to teach about the kingdom. And they're now coming back to Jesus to kind of report about what's going on. And so in that moment, Jesus is wanting to visit and talk with his disciples. So he's trying to get away. But the crowds won't let him. But there's also something else happening here that in Mark's gospel, he throws into this narrative that this was also around the time that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded, that he was killed. You know, John was a very vocal, kind of prophet-like guy. He's telling people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was very vocal about Herod, the king, King Herod's marriage. Herod had married his brother's wife, and John was speaking out about it. And Herod didn't like it, so he rested him. And in a strange story where there's a birthday party, and Herod asks his stepdaughter, anything you want, I'll give it to you. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And Herod kills him, beheads him. And so at around this time, Jesus is processing his disciples going out and coming back, but also the emotion that he would have had for his cousin John being beheaded, the one who baptized him, the one who had pointed others to him. So this is all kind of taking place. We're going to read through John's gospel, or excuse me, Mark's gospel to kind of pick up the story. So in Mark chapter 6, here's what we have: It says that the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to them, to him all they'd done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So Jesus is trying to listen to them and get them to a place, and it's too chaotic, and I can understand that, and says, let's go, let's go over here. <laughs> so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Poor Jesus. He just wants a moment to breathe and they won't leave him alone. It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Now see, this is where Brent and Jesus differ because Brent would have just put his hands up and said, no, no, go home, come back tomorrow. I need to rest. But it says, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. They said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered. He said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money uh, on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, I read stories like that and I think, oh, to have been there. To be there as a part of the crowd of the disciples to experience what was going. And I have so many questions about what's happening here. And we're going to get to some of those. But as you read the other gospel accounts of the story, we find that these crowds They know about Jesus. They've heard about him. They know he can do great things. They like what he's teaching, and they're tracking him down. And even though he's hungry and even though he's tired and possibly a bit emotionally exhausted from what happened to his cousin John, he doesn't push them away. He doesn't say, go home and give me a break. He actually welcomes them. He talks to them about the kingdom. And in Luke's gospel, we read that he does some healing in that moment as well. And if we take this story just by itself, there's really a danger in that because this, is, this story isn't just a standalone story by itself. In fact, as I said, there's significance that all four Gospels talk about it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's also a part of the bigger narrative, a bigger story that God is telling. And there's so many details in this story that I believe that the crowd that day would pick up on and see things and go, oh, we've been hearing about this. This is something that we've been being taught for years. And it begins with even the way that they thought the Messiah would come. They're looking at Jesus and they're really trying to evaluate whether he is the Messiah or not. But they knew that when the Messiah would come, food, a banquet, feeding masses of people would be a part of it. In fact, Isaiah chapter 25 records this it says, On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wine. And so as Jesus does this for this crowd, this would be playing in their minds. Oh, I think I remember Isaiah talking about this, writing about this. That was in the scroll that we've read. But then you dig even deeper and you realize that there's even more that points us to this narrative God is bringing forth from the Old Testament. For example, even the way Jesus provided and the bread. Because, see, they were very familiar with the Exodus story. They knew about Moses. And what happened when Moses led the people through the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness, and, of course, these gripey people, man, they just complain the whole time. They, you know, what have you done? You're leading us out here to die, whatever. We're starving to death. And Moses, what does Moses do? He prays. And what does God do? God sends manna from heaven, bread down from heaven to feed them daily. And so as these people are here with Jesus, as Jesus is breaking the bread and they have this food, they would have seen this as a picture of Moses. Not just the Moses come back, but a new, better, a greater Moses. They would have put this together, that past, these sacred stories from their past, a supernatural feeding then and a supernatural feeding now. But there's also another story. It's not just Moses, because there's another story about the prophet Elisha. In 2 Kings 4, we read about it. There's a baker, and he brings 20 loaves of bread to feed 100 people. And Elisha's like, yeah, feed them. And the baker's like, hold on, that's not enough. In fact, here it is. It says, the baker says, how can I set this before 100 men? But Elisha answered, he said, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will, have, uh, they will eat and have some left over. And he said it before them, and they ate, and they had some left over. Sound familiar? Images of, of the past being brought forward. People making these connections to see these sacred stories that they'd been told now being fulfilled in a new and better and greater way in Jesus. And then there's one other important connecting point, as Mark says it. Jesus talks about, he says, he had compassion on them. He looked at them and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the numerous references in the Old Testament to sheep and the shepherds like Moses and like David. And even when you read the story of Moses passing the baton of leadership to Joshua, he knows the significance of this moment because he says they don't want, they don't, they can't be people, a sheep without a shepherd. That exact phrasing is used and brought forward. And we see that all these things come together. And so I point this out because I just want you to see there's significance in this story. It's not just a cool story where Jesus did some miraculous thing and fished and fed a bunch of, bunch of people. God is in, in an incredible way weaving together this story, this grand narrative from creation to the prophets and Moses, all the way through Jesus through us today, this grand narrative that is being unfolded before us, which is amazing. So we love, I love that. And I hope you and I hope that brings life to scripture for you as we see the Bible. But even beyond that, which is cool enough, as I read this story, I begin asking a bunch of questions. Like my biggest question would be, how? How did this happen? Because as I think about the crowd that day, we're told it was 5,000 men. I guess women and children weren't important enough to count back then. So, you know, sorry, all of you. But when we read into that, what that tells us is it wasn't just a crowd of men. There were women and children there, and so there were probably anywhere from ten to 15,000 people there. Do you know what that's equal to? That is a picture of a concert at Wells Fargo Arena downtown. That is the equivalent of the people that would have been around Jesus that day. Now, I don't even know how they all got together. How do you hear Jesus at that? I don't even know how this goes on. But I wonder... How did Jesus take five loaves and two fish and feed that crowd? Anybody else want to know that? There used to be a show on television called The Masked Magician. Anybody remember that? And they would kind of he would do magic tricks and then he would tell you how it's done. He broke the magician's code. I love that show because I always love to see how things work, how things are put together. But what's interesting here is we there's two possibilities I think of how this story took how it took place, how it unfolded. And the first one, I think, is where we land is the miraculous model. It's how we look at it and we go, there was a miracle that took place that day, that there was very little food and that Jesus prayed and it became much food, (laughs) so much food that everyone ate until they were full and satisfied. And then at the end, they collected 12 baskets of leftovers. I have no problem with this telling I think for people, us, that are following Jesus and our faith is founded on the fact that a man was dead and rose to life, for him to break bread and feed a multitude, he's not even breaking a sweat to do this. It's just, that's the easy part, right? So I don't think this is a problem for him to be able to do something miraculously. Because as we even look back and you read the Gospel of John, John 1, it tells us that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And nothing that exists was created except through Him. So there was nothing. Jesus, God, spoke. There was something. So for Him to speak and fish and bread multiply, great. No problem with that. But some people look at this and they go, but there's a problem there. I don't know that that could happen. Okay, I'm okay with that too. So there's an idea that's another option out there. It's called the resource model. And basically it says as the disciples get the the loaves and the fish and the young boy shares his meal and we get that in another story and Jesus sets them in groups of 50s and 100s that as they sat down, others went, oh, you know what? I forgot I had an igloo cooler with me. Let me open it up and I'll bring out my loaves and my fish. I think you can get there. I think that's okay, too. But I don't think these two ideas are mutually exclusive either. I, I, I think they can both happen. But what I want us to be cautious of is sometimes what we like to do, what I like to do, is I want the Bible to answer questions that it doesn't answer. I want to know how this happened. Were the disciples just blindly walking with baskets and they just kept reaching in and fish just kept coming out? Could you have looked down in the basket and see fish just start bubbling to the top and overflowing? I don't know. And the problem is the gospels don't tell us. And I think this highlights for us one of the challenges we have when we come to the Bible is that we want it to answer questions that it's not intending to answer. So we try to force it to. And in doing so, we miss the bigger picture of what this story is trying to communicate to us. How does, what, is, what is the point? I mean, as I said... It's in four Gospels. That's significant. That is so important. So I took a step back this week and I thought, what do all four Gospel writers share in all the stories? There's a few details that get, you know, this highlights this and that, but what do they all talk about? You know where it begins? Every writer begins that the disciples saw a need and the need was hungry people. That's the foundation. There were hungry people. And to their credit, the disciples, who were probably hungry and tired themselves, began to think about the people and see a need within the people. And before it got too late, they said, these people are going to need to eat. Let's help take care of them. But what the disciples didn't count on was Jesus' response. Because all four narratives then tell us that the disciples are then told by Jesus, you feed them. You take care of this. And there is significance when, I, when, when it talks about Jesus and his compassion and all this. Because I think sometimes when we think of compassion, we think of it like this. Oh, I feel bad. I hope things get better for you. Let me go about my day. But the compassion that Jesus shows here is not, I'm going to make a social media post about, oh, this tragedy. It's, I move to the point of compassion that it moves me to action. It moves Jesus to action, to step in and to meet the very real need of people. And instead of passing the buck to someone else to say, Well, you do this, you take care of them, you do it, he tells the disciples, You can do better than this. You can actually be a part of the solution. You give them something to eat, you take care of this, make this your responsibility, own this. And in doing this, what Jesus is doing is he's inviting them to be a part of the solution. Now, I get the disciples. I'd have been the same way because they had basically two responses, two objections to what Jesus is saying. The first one was kind of like this who me moment, like, you feed them. Me? And then they tell them why they can't do it because they look at it from a position of scarcity and they go... We only have five loaves and two fish. We can't do this. When we only have five loaves and two fish. I mean, they stole some little kid's Lunchable along the way and made an excuse of not having enough. They saw the little. The other response they had is this, and it'll cost too much. We don't have enough, and it'll cost too much. They said to feed everyone would cost a half of year's wages. But Jesus is not limited And he's undeterred by these limitations or these excuses or these objections. And in this, we see something beautiful. Because even through their objections, we see Jesus inviting them in to see what he can do when there is a need. Even when it looks like there isn't enough. Isn't that beautiful? That even though the disciples are just going, no, we can't send them away. And Jesus is still saying, hold on come in. Let me invite you in. We're going to do something together, and it's going to be incredible. There's another common thread here, too, is that it says all the stories talk about the people eating and being satisfied, being full. And some people might try to say, oh, well, that's exaggeration. They just all got a little nibble of something. Why? If there's 15,000 people, a little nibble still a miracle for all 15,000 to get something. There's something incredible, but the Bible, all the stories say they had their feel. They were satisfied. No one left lacking. No one left hungry, which I love. And then the last common thread is just this, is that all of them mentioned that there were leftovers. Twelve baskets full. Of course, 12 is a significant number in the Bible as well. There were 12 tribes of Israel in there. There were 12 t- disciples. And what I think is funny is that there were 12 men who said, we don't have enough. And every one of those guys who said, we don't have enough, walked away with a basket. Isn't that just showing us the sense of humor of God? You said there wasn't enough, now take a basket with you. That's God. I love stories like this and all the stories that we're looking at this summer because they captured Jesus, not in some grandiose situation, but it's just... He's just minding his business. He's just meeting with his disciples. They're trying to get away, and man, the crowd's just come. And we get a glimpse into who Jesus is and what he's really about in these moments, in these stories. And so, you know, as we think about this story, I think it's easy for us to maybe even want to put ourselves into the story, to say, who am I in this story? And there's a few options here. Maybe we feel like we're the crowd, Maybe we feel like we're following Jesus around and there's something there, there's something special and we're kind of searching and we recognize that we have a need for something. We're hungry, we need healing, we want deliverance. We're looking for meaning and purpose. We know life has to be more than just existing. And we come to Jesus and in this story we see that Jesus, for those who are seeking, He won't turn us away. He invites us in and He looks at us with a heart and with eyes of compassion. And he will teach us and he will share his life with us and he will heal us and he'll meet our needs and he'll set us free and give life meaning and purpose and he'll feed us physically and spiritually. That's a possibility. Maybe you see yourself as the crowd today. But maybe you see yourself as the disciples in the story. You're aware of a need out there, but we're overwhelmed about that need and we don't know what to do about it. Maybe you're indifferent to the need. Maybe your own hunger keeps you from really digging in and caring. But maybe you're tempted to respond the way the disciples did. You know what? Just send them away. Let somebody else deal with it. There's a need. But as I was reading this week, one commentary made this point it says, God doesn't usually lead us to see a need unless it is in his mind to meet that need through us, even if we might be unwilling. Isn't that amazing? I've a beautiful sentiment, too, that when we are recognizing a need around us, that it's God's invitation to us to help be a part of what he's doing. And I, and I think in our world, sometimes that we, when we see a need, we assume that that means making a social media post about it, and then we've done all we need to do, that we've addressed that need and we can move on Or to address that need need means just telling somebody else, notifying others. But what might we be missing by moving on when Jesus wants to bring us into and be a part of the solution, a part of something miraculous? We can focus on the little we have, our limited resources, or we can begin to ask, what can Jesus do with what we've got? Jesus didn't seem to be bothered by the finite resources. He didn't seem to be bothered by the exorbitant cost to feeding the people. He saw the need and he acted. And Jesus can take our loaves, our fish, our money, our skill set, our time, energy, love, gifts, whatever we have to offer and do amazing things with it, are we willing to offer? But I think there's a temptation for us to try to operate from a position of scarcity. We kind of build a theology of scarcity. And I wonder how many times this mentality keeps us from acting. I'm not good enough. My home's not good enough. I don't have enough. And what we see in this story is that in the hands of Jesus, it is more than enough even to where there is leftovers. I think back to a story. In 2020, COVID's raging. We're all not even meeting in person still. We're, we're meeting by Zoom, trying to figure out what the world's all about. And sitting in our offices down here, we began to have conversations to say, okay, we need to dive into something. This need, Something needs to be done in our world. So we picked up the phone and we called. Althea Holcomb, who is the director, executive director of West Des Moines Human Services. You may not know this. West Des Moines is one of the, uh, maybe the only municipality in the state of Iowa that has its own human services department. So that's something they're committed to, that they've created this to help meet needs in the community. So we reached out to her and we said, what do you need? And she said, well, we could use some soaps and we could use, you know, some personal hygiene products like toothbrushes and toothpaste. And we were like, okay, she's missing what we're asking. So we emailed her back, and we said, no, if you had a million dollars. Now, we didn't have a million dollars, but if you had a million dollars, what would you do? And she went, oh, that's your question. And then we had an extended conversation with her that began with her saying, the greatest need I see in our community is childcare Not enough, and specifically, there's not enough. For families that can't afford childcare, those that need childcare assistance. So we took that conversation, we began praying, and we began talking with the elders of the church. And we kind of laid out and said, in the, I remember in the beginning, we said, We don't know what God could do with this. I wasn't pushing it. The others on the staff weren't pushing it. We just said, Let's talk about this. And in the beginning, there were some elders that were like, I don't know about this. This sounds like a big, mm, I'm not sure. But over like a six-month window, after many, many conversations, we all came to the place and we said, you know what? We've got a building that sits empty six days a week. That's just bad stewardship. We've got cash in the bank. Praise God, through COVID, our finances did fine, and we had some cash on hand. It's just sitting there. What if we take this and we see what can happen? And we began to move. And in 2021, we began the process of redoing our building. I can't tell you the number of hoops that had to be jumped through. We had to have the the land had to be rezoned in order to do it. We went to a planning commission meeting, which not my strong suit. We've met with the fire marshal and the fire inspectors and the building inspectors and architects and all these things to try to make this happen. Along the way, there was money and we thought, oh, there's a grant. And we applied for it, and we thought, we've got it. And we did some things, and then we found out we didn't get it. And we were like, oh. And there were some mistakes along the way, costly mistakes. Like when we assumed we had extra money, and we told the painter, oh, yeah, just paint down the hall. The carpet doesn't matter. We're going to replace it. Well, that was a $25,000 mistake at the time. And I went, oh. I lost a little bit of sleep over that one. But then, because we were moving forward, we had offered our loaves and fish, Miraculously, the grant we thought we didn't get, we were contacted and said, oh, there's more money. You get it. $750,000. And last Friday, we submitted the final rounds of receipts where we turned in $750,000 worth of expenses to be covered by somebody else. Isn't that amazing? You see, that story I tell you because... When we began this process, we had no idea the money was there. During the process, we thought we had it and we lost it a couple of times, which was very disappointing. A lot of heartburn for Brent over that one. And in the end, God took what we had, our faithfulness, and multiplied it. Now, I'm not saying that to say God does that every time. But I just want to remind you that God is still in the business of multiplying loaves and fishes He's in the business of taking what you have, even when you look at it and you go, it's not enough, it's not good enough, it's not big enough. And he says, but I can use it. He says, I said, I think we deal a lot with a theology of scarcity. We don't have enough. And what we need is a theology of leftovers. There's a book called Dinners with Jesus. We're kind of using it to help guide the series. And the author, Tim Chester, he writes this. He says, we need a theology of leftovers. He said, the Old Testament people of Israel were told together, that, uh, told together just enough manna for one day. And that's in Exodus 16. When they tried to gather two days worth, it always went bad. If you acted as if manna was a finite resource that must be hoarded, then it went bad. You could only consume it by trusting that, to be, that it was an infinite resource from God. The disciples thought their five loaves were a finite resource that couldn't be shared. 5,000 people later, they still had 12 baskets full of bread. How often do we look at things to say they're finite when God goes, nothing is finite with me. I'm an infinite God and can do more than you could ever ask or imagine. That quote continues, he says, Can you reach your neighborhood with the gospel? Can you pluck up the courage to tell your friends about Jesus? Can you start a new church in your city? Can you feed 5,000 people with five loaves? I love that quote. We need to replace our theology of scarcity with a theology of leftovers to see that God can do more than we could ever imagine. What is God saying to you today? Maybe you came in here with a need. And I want you to hear from this story that Jesus has compassion and will help you meet that need. But maybe you see a need. Maybe you're like, I'm good. God's been good to me. Life is okay. I'm okay. We're moving forward. But maybe you see a need. How might Jesus be inviting you to be a part of meeting that need, to see him do the miraculous by multiplying what you have to meet that need in our world today? Let's pray.